This is the Hunt Quietly Podcast. I'm Matt Ranella. Richard Prideau, thank you for coming on today from the UK and telling us a little bit about the situation there as it pertains to hunting and what it might portend for us in the US and 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 maybe a little bit for me about what our situation here might portend for you. Yeah, this was um I don't normally reach out to podcasts host and say hey can i be on your show but there were sort of several levels of things that you were discussing in those early episodes that made me think yeah i i might have a, either a unique take on this or at least it'll uh stop me being annoyed when i listen to other other american podcasts by maybe correcting some things or at least uh some of the things that do annoy me because i think there's a couple of things that you always hear when the european hunting model or particularly the situation with hunting in the uk is discussed in american media and there are some yeah things... i don't know shit i'm just like saying stuff that other people say I mean, well it... i just have this vague sense that you know the kind of hunting i like that i the only kind of hunting i care about which is the kind that doesn't involve getting out your wallet and paying for access mm. and that's what this podcast is all about is trying to is completely devoted to trying to combat bad incentives for hunting combat mm-hmm. overcrowding by taking people out of the game that do it for bad reasons by disincentivizing it trying to trying to uh as much as possible keep it from becoming a pay-to-play thing in the u.s which it largely already has but there's still you know some public land opportunity here uh, but yeah, so when I throw out, oh, the European, I'm just like using it as a scare tactic, you know, but I don't know shit about it. I just hear other people say that. Mm. I guess it's in juxtaposition to the North American model of wildlife yeah. management, which was supposed to be this unique, egalitarian, everybody gets to hunt thing, you know, but anyway. Well, yeah, I- so I want to, yeah, I want, <laughs> I want to hear all about how us Americans get it wrong when we talk about hunting in Europe. Okay, I'll try and find somewhere. I find a good place to start. Um, I've got some numbers here which might help put things into context uh, for your listeners because I'm guessing most of your audience is in the US. Is that correct? Yeah, I'd, all six of them. Yeah. Well, I'm 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 number seven. I'm in the I'm in Wales. So. <laughs> so, the UK is not a big place, but it's generally bigger than. Um, most Americans seem to seem to think um, because I, I work a lot with American clients um, working remotely and uh, I have some business partners over there. So it's, we've got about 93,000 square miles, which I think is about, it's a little bit smaller than Oregon. Um, so it's, it's, it's not huge, but it's not tiny either. So we've got, yeah, so about 93,000 square miles, but we've got a population of about 68 and a half million. So I think that's about 700 people per square mile, which is about the same as Connecticut. I did. I don't just know the states off by heart. I have spent some time trying to convert this to put it into mm-hmm. context. Um, so that's a lot of people in a small place. The other thing is that we've 
been doing human things and human civilization things consistently in the UK for thousands of years. I and mean, we've been farming here since 5000 BC. So land management is a very different track to what you have over there. You're starting, the building I'm sitting in is a hundred years older than your country. Wow. So, and this is an old farm building and this is my, now my office, but the, but the stones on the wall in front of me were laid here sometime in sometime the 16th century, probably thereabouts. So we've almost got too much history here. If you dig down into any of the fields, you could be digging up a World War II bomb or something from uh, the English Civil War, or you can be digging something up from the Normans or the Saxons, Vikings, Romans. You know, you just don't know what you're going to find. We have too much history and too many too many overlaying factors that have dictated what happened to the land here. So that's kind of the, the background to why it's weird here, because we have a small place, lots of people now with a very, very detailed and complicated history. So the thing I often hear is, well, there was a guy who I don't know him personally, but I just listened to the podcast. The, there was a meat eater episode a few months ago with a, a British guy talking about how you have to pay to hunt everywhere you go. There's no access to land. You can't get guns. There's which none of that really reflects my experience. Um, so I'm probably going to stop my, my monologue now and let you come in if you have any questions. So yeah, a few. I want I want to hear I want to hear in, in more detail where your perspective I did not listen to that podcast but hmm. where your perspective differs from his um but first a few background I want a little background on you you hmm. do you live on a farm We do it's um it would be called a small holding here um so I don't know if that translates like a small homestead it's not a commercial farm but we have animals we grow our food here um but i i work doing other things so i'm not a farmer who does the farming um well on this place or just generally yeah uh, on this place so we do it i'm not a farmer in terms of commercially but i do we do grow you know grow our own vegetables and things here we have a couple of horses um and we are we have some livestock occasionally we have some chickens and things which are just it's almost like a hobby. It's the thing that you do in the evenings after work or at the weekends. Um, yeah, that but sounds like my situation here. I have seven acres and then my neighbor hmm. is one of my best friends and I gave him three acres so he could build a house. And now we have hmm. some chickens and I have some, my pack llamas here. So yeah. do you hunt on this? What do you call it? Holding? In a small holding. Yeah. Small it's, holding? it's only a couple of acres, but we do shoot rabbits and gray squirrels and things here. Um, but we, I have access just in the valley that I live in, I have access to about 1,500, 2,000 acres of oh, hunting yeah. land. Oh, well, that we're going to get into that for sure, mm. um, if you're willing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, but I want a, a few more, another hanging chad, mm -hmm. which is the, your business partners in the U.S. What line of work are you in? Um, I do about a million things, all in order to avoid having a real job. Um, I started off as a, an outdoor instructor, as a sort of mountaineering and um, instructor, mountain guide, the various qualifications for that here. Um, 
I was in search and rescue for about 10 years, although that's voluntary here. You don't get paid for that, but that was building up experience. And the combination of the two of those, I was using pre-COVID to deliver training to all sorts of people, the general public, businesses, occasionally the military. Um, as And parallel to that, I was talking a lot about foraging and wild food. And because that's something that's a big history of my in my family, very informally, but of interactions with plants, ethnobotany, where plant where these wild plants grow, access to them, what you can use them for, and so on. Um, and talking to people about that and running courses with that. Then COVID hit, that whole business model was destroyed. So I started finding opportunities to deliver that training remotely via Zoom and going and delivering some of the uh, search training and things to people in the States. I've always done a bit of photography, like a lot of outdoors people. So I started doing photography more commercially and I did some remote video editing for some outdoor businesses in the States. Um, Very small stuff, but um, over there now I've got a couple of uh, projects that we're working on around back to the outdoor skills training and maybe some of the wild food things um, over there. but when I, I say want biz- to take one of your classes, how would I do it? Uh, if you were, came over to the UK, if you went to originaloutdoors.co.uk, there's a whole list there. But there aren't many people with my name. So if you Google my name, you probably it's either going to be me or some 18th century bishop. Um, oh, well. So if I, I would, I could sign up for a class that would, mm-hmm. you would be taking me on a tour with your GoPro and showing me plants and saying, you can eat this one. And Oh, for that, oh, for that, for God's sake, don't eat that one and stuff like that. For that kind of thing. I could, I mean, for the plant stuff, Wait, is, we te- we, but not could, I want to know what you do. We don't tend to do the plant stuff remotely, um, oh. but we do the other skills, outdoor skills, the I think what, stuff and outdoor safety. I think maybe what would be called survival. Uh-huh. over there um but just i prefer the term wilderness skills the sort of the skills for doing things competently and well in the backcountry rather than waiting for disaster to happen and then dealing with it it's the where well, you can avoid disaster by doing things well in the first place so yeah, making yeah I making good use, decisions i could probably use a little of that i've had zero training mm. with that kind of stuff i don't even bring a first aid kit when i go on the mountains not even a freaking band-aid I got some duct tape and some toilet paper, um, but do a lot with that. <laughs> yeah. It's just funny. I'm like Mr. Magoo out there, you know, like I'm not, you know who Mr. Magoo was? Yeah. yeah. yeah the blind, the blind <laughs> cartoon character and just kind of bumbling around in grizzly bear country by myself for weeks on end um, and rugged, nasty terrain and somehow i've never had a serious incident but how many but <laughs> but could you imagine if everybody was like that how many how many search and rescue calls there'd be i do carry a i do carry a in reach with me so mm-hmm. I, I have an oh shit button i can press but that's basically the extent i just think about all the like how i'm not a very I'm not a very alert person and mm-hmm. and I, I don't have very good situational awareness. And then you, then I hunt alone. And then I also have a cabin in Alaska and I go out on the, on the ocean and these little boats with friends mm-hmm. of mine that know even less about 
being a mariner than me and how blessed I've been to not have anything serious happen. So I applaud you for that work because someday I'm going to, something is going to happen and then I'm going to realize that it's not all fun and games and it's, you should be careful, you know? So, well, there's, there's a podcast um, I host called modern outdoor survival. So we go mm. into all of that, which we try and make as sort of generic as possible. Um, but that is, that's probably where we've picked up more American contacts in the last 12 months than anywhere else. Oh, through that medium. Yeah. Okay. Have you ever, uh, have you ever gone free diving? As in, so diving without without air, or yeah, um, I've done a little bit of spearfishing here and snorkeling, but not the full training for it and going down deep. Oh, I've, I just took a like I'm just not a a class taking kind of a person, mm. uh, but I still like I applaud you for what you're doing. But I just took a five day free diving class and. It was so eye-opening to me, man. I just loved it. My wife and I go to this little island in the Bahamas, and there's a we've gone there five times. Hmm. And the first time we went there, we went and looked at this blue hole. Mm-hmm. It's right on the edge of the ocean, and it's 630-some feet deep. Oof. And we just went to look at it because it was an oddity. It's like a tourist attraction. Mm-hmm. And then last year, about a, a calendar year ago, I went spear fishing in the Gulf of Mexico with my brother and some guys that knew what they were doing. And we were diving around the oil platforms mm-hmm. and they, they, uh, were, they're quite accomplished. I mean, mm-hmm. they could go way down deep and, they were shooting a lot of big fish and I, I couldn't get down more than 20 feet and I felt pretty pathetic. And, um, two of these guys had been with people when they died, um, from shallow water blackout, which is the Mm. scourge of the free diver. Do you know how that works? Go on, explain to me. Cause if I say, I'll just get it wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so, by the time you're down 30 feet, the air in your lungs and in your mouth mm. and everywhere else in your body is already compressed to one quarter the volume. Yep. So, and then if you go down way further, it's the, the rate of compression slows down. So as you're going down, your, your lungs are, obviously this is not the medically correct terminology, but searching searching for oxygen Mm -hmm. molecules that are becoming depleted, but at least they're searching in a smaller volume. Mm. And then when you start to come up now, you're getting near the surface. Now there's very few oxygen molecules in that volume of air, but it's a much bigger volume of air. Mm. So people tend to, to black out right near the surface even if they're going down 150 feet or whatever. So it's almost, it's within sight of the light. It's just as you're getting yeah, there, yeah. it all comes in. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Beautifully put. Yeah. So that's, that's a depressing way to die. So after that trip, Oh, they, they basically said they wouldn't take me again unless I got some training. They were <laughs> very concerned about us, about my brother and I, 
Mm. And so then I, I was like, oh, I think they do some diving at that blue hole. Turns out it's the premier place for deep water, for free diving, training, uh, and competitions are held there. And there's a guy that owns a company that trains people there. His name is William Truebridge. And okay. he he's from New Zealand. And he's he has several records, world records in his event. And then the guy that trained us, I can't remember his last name right now, now is his first name is Walid, but he has world records. His world record is in this event where you strap yourself into a weighted sled mm. and you write down in advance how far, what at what depth you want that thing to stop. And, and then it goes, it just hauls you, you haul ass down there and then swim to the surface. Mm. There's a movie where they do that in the nineties or eighties. It was called, it's called deep or the big blue. It's all about that. Uh, it's kind of a cool movie. Um, but William, the owner, his, his event is called, uh, free immersion mm. and you don't have fins on and you just grab a hold of the rope and you start hand over hand down you go. I've and, seen that in YouTube thing, things. Oh, okay. Yeah. And he, he was training for an event. We were there in March. He's training for, to make a world record attempt in mm. August, which entailed one dive every two days. Like these guys are ripped. I mean, they're fit, but, but most of that is, you know, jogging and everything like that. Mm. But in terms of diving training, it's one dive every two days. And he would come out. We were in class. I got to see him go down three times. And he would lay on that raft on his back. I think it was on his back. But for like about a half hour, motionless, just meditating. And then he'd get in the water and lay across those styrofoam noodles, two of those noodles for 10 minutes on his back motionless and then he'd take one big inhale mm. and then he'd start going sipping air they call it packing yep and down he'd go and he would come up about five minutes later freezing cold purple and white he looked like a man that was raised from the dead. What, I mean, what physical capability have they got when they're at that depth? Can they just sort of float around and move their arms or can they do as much as they, they could, if they'd been down for one minute, does it, does your physical capability decrease then as you go spend more time underwater? Oh yeah. I, I mean, He's still moving around properly and is mm. coordinated when he comes back up, but he just looks like shit. You know, <laughs> he was going down like 440 feet. Like the, he was going, he was just flirting with the record. That was like the training it was just to flirt with it. But it, 
it's uh I gather that I gather that every meter is excruciating when you get near your limit. Oh, well, I know that firsthand. So <laughs> for five days, all I did was I didn't give a shit about going down, holding on to that rope. Cause I'm just trying to go down and stab a fish. I'm not going to, there's not going to be a rope there. So I was just swimming down next to the rope, which they encouraged. They said you could do it either way. And, and I got down to 90 feet, but you know, that I was diving 10 or 12 times a day and every attempt it took everything I had to go a little further. Mm. And it's not, it's not, my wife was, my wife is, uh, couldn't even get her ankles underwater when she started. She took the class with me and my wife is, my wife is an amazing student. Any t- anything where there's an instructor involved, she just excels at. It's crazy how much she can, wisdom she can sap out of somebody that's teaching her something. But by the, yeah, by the end, she could get down 60 feet. And I think a couple more days and she would have been way past me. Um, cause I started out being able to go 40 feet or something like that. Uh, but it's the bottleneck is getting your, is, is equalization, getting your ears to hmm. get shove, uh, pushing air through your station tubes into your inner ear. You're supposed to do it with air, a pocket of air in your mouth, not like using your diaphragm. Hmm. And, uh, it's called the frenzel technique. And, but like that pocket of air in your mouth is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So it's harder Mm. to push it with your tongue and you know, so that, but I, I I feel that I I could have easily gone almost twice as far if it wasn't for and when and they they're real strict about it they said once you start to have pain in your ears if you can't get your ears to go that's it you can come back up that wasn't a long uh aside so you're gonna you're gonna get to do most of the talking for the rest of this discussion now that's fine i'm I'm, i've got i want to ask you questions about that but i'm going to um refrain from doing so <laughs> yeah, because I've got more questions uh, about altitude and air pressure and where you live and whether that affects your ability oh, to. Well, yeah. yeah, but let's park that. Okay. <laughs> uh, what do you want me to talk about then? Oh, so well, you had lots of items. Mm. Well, okay, tell me about this fifteen hundred to two thousand that you get to acres that you get to hunt. Okay, so where I li- I live in Wales. I'm not uh, Wales is it's a culturally separate part of the UK, like Scotland or Northern Ireland. It's, it's not England, but we, it's within the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Um, but it has its own language, Welsh. Um, and I mean, everyone here speaks English, but most of the people in this area, in this little valley that I live in, they are first language Welsh. So they speak Welsh first and English second. Um, we have a, my brothers and I have a cabin on Prince of Wales Island. Yeah. So is, is I that remember that? why it's named that. Mm. Just some historical em, empire thing, probably, or just, mm. you know, who it, it was named for. Because isn't it um, various like Virginia's name for Queen Elizabeth and things right, like that. Right, the, right. Yeah. Yeah. They were, they were trying to curry favor with um, whoever was in charge, whoever had the money at the time. Okay. Um, 
you, you name it for them in case they might fund your next trip. Oh, okay. um, so maybe that was it. Yeah. So Wales, um, I live in sort of northeast Wales. Wales isn't very big, but it's still it's a good four-hour drive from one end to the other, and it's about two, two, three hours drive to cut across it. Um, very rural area. Um, farming is the one of the main occupations here. Um, or, but that's all changing demographically. That's all changing, and maybe I'll talk about that later on. Um, I lived here for about 12 years 13 years um and i've tried to make contact with different landowners and make contact with landowners to access for different things um so you bought your little small holding uh, no years ago no we rent it we actually rent it from oh. another farmer who has owned it for 30 something years and he this is the only farm he owns. The farm that that farmer farms on, he rents from another place, which he's got on a hundred year lease from a, some big, some another another big farm. Um, so there's this sort of weird chain of property ownership and access. But you know, we rent this, um, but we rent it as a farm that comes with a house rather than renting a house that comes with land. This is you and your wife, uh, fiance. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we're here. We, but we've we try to make good connections with the local area and with the local community. So maybe I should explain a bit more about what, what that community looks like. We're in a, a village, a couple of thousand people, which is a couple of miles outside of a town, which is probably five, 6,000 people. If that, um, not huge. I mean, even the village, when you say 2000 people is that includes all of the farms, all of the small habitat, you know, and, habitations around the area so it's more of a municipal population rather than all lumped together in one place um mm-hmm. so lots of farmland there are farms and houses out around here and then there are just houses that people live in um the thing with access for hunting in the uk it's your ability to own firearms is directly related to your uh, requirement for them so there are two types of certificates they're called which means you can own um firearms in the uk so uh, there's a shotgun certificate and there's a firearm certificate so a shotgun um is as it sounds it's a shotgun um over and under side by side um semi-auto they're all classed under the same classification as a shotgun you do not if you are an adult you do not have um the equivalent of a felony and you have somewhere safe to store it you can own a shotgun. It's just a paperwork issue after that. You do not need another good reason to own it. So I know people in the middle of London who own three or four shotguns and they have it in their flat in the middle of London. Um, they do not own land anywhere. They, do, they, they only go and shoot clay pigeons or they go and shoot pheasants occasionally, um, but they do not own any other land. So it's just a paperwork exercise. Um, that means you can you can own a shotgun. There are limitations for uh, certain criminal um, history and things like that, but ge- and actually mental health as well, because now it's tied to your doctor's records, which I know is a discussion there. I think it's it's not kind of the equivalent of the red flag laws, but it is the when you apply for a shotgun certificate or renew it, um, you at least for our police force, you have to submit a letter signed by your doctor saying you do not suffer from certain mental health conditions, um, you are not on certain medication and so on. 
what if you were medicated for depression? Depends what it was. Depends if it was well managed. Depends if it was tied to other incidents. It, it, it's one of those. If it's no, it's simple. If the answer is yes, you are on medication for depression, then what medication? How long for? Is it? And it's just a further list of questions. Then um, I don't know where the criteria is for yes or no, but there have been a couple of equivalent of mass. Well, they are mass shooter incidents over the last. 20, 30 years here, and they've all been linked to mental health to one degree or another. And what a weird thing. What a what weird juxtaposition. There's been yeah. that many over the last 20 or 30 days oh, here. Yeah. <laughs> it, that's that's a comparison that's drawn yeah, here quite often. Yeah. yeah. Um it's a very different world. Um, so that's a sh- that's the shotgun side of it. And there are just over half a million shotgun certificate holders in the UK. Um whereas a firearm certificate, you need to show why you have a good reason for owning those firearms. And you are applying to your local police force. So it's down to your chief of police to decide whether you have a good reason. So this would be a the, rifle or a pistol. Uh, pistols are completely banned here. Ah. So we they were you could own them up until the mid-90s, and then there was a mass shooting incident in a school. Uh, uh, so that was uh that was the immediate ban on pistols, um, sort of similar to the to the Australian and the New Zealand things. Um, it was just an immediate, right, that's the end of pistols now. Um, so firearms, as in rifles, so rimfires, centerfires, uh, that your two reasons for owning it generally are either for target and competition or for hunting, pest control, humane dispatch of animals, and so on. And the target side of things tends to be it was mostly sort of rifle clubs and competitions long-range shooting competitions and related to the olympics and those that kind of target shooting although more recently practical rifle shooting has started to become popular here and more military style competitions um so we don't have three gun because you can't have a pistol but there are two gun competitions here where you can do with two two semi-auto rifles and shotguns Mm. So they are start, not hugely popular, but there are places where you can go and do it, which that didn't really exist 20 years ago. Um, the hunting side of things, which is what I know more about, or at least what I'm here to talk about, um, that is, what is your reason for owning it? Why, If you say hunting, and we say pest control instead of varmint control or predator control, but what's your your reason for that is then directly tied to how much land you have permission to shoot on. So I need permission of the landowner to shoot on any land. So if I go into the fields next to my farm here without permission to shoot there, and I've got, and I have my rifle in my hand, I'm immediately committing a very serious criminal offense. Um, And the same would be if I went out, to anywhere else i didn't have permission to have that but because i do have written permission from my neighbor to shoot on his land i can jump over my gate and stand on his land with a rifle as i was earlier today and it'd be completely lawful so that 1500 to 2000 acres because i've just negotiated a new one we have to for here if you're hunting regularly in the uk you either have to pay and pay to access somebody else's permissions or you negotiate your own. And that's what I do. So I've never paid to hunt. 
what is your what do you use to incentivize people to let you on so for some places it is pest control so rabbits uh, are a big problem for farmers um we've ra- had rabbits here since well for a thousand years or so um and they were brought here as a food supply as a free food supply they were basically let out into the landscape there was a couple of guys to manage them and then it was just a a farming wild farming food source are they native to the continent yeah they're yeah the native i think like native to southern europe more i think um but they are everywhere here i mean if i can at at sunset here if i walked into the uh the next door field i could spook 20 rabbits oh Uh, um and they can eat a lot of grass um or damage trees or do other things so here there isn't there's no hunting season for rabbits here they are year round you can hunt as many as you want uh, bucks does doesn't matter you can hunt almost to the point of extinction um but you can't hunt fast enough to reduce the numbers to zero what has been an issue is uh, there's a hemorrhagic viral disease and there's a, another disease called myxomatosis which have really reduced the numbers here um so that is one incentive is reducing that number for farmers and landowners that don't have time to hunt themselves. Um, predator control for foxes. Uh, we don't have coyotes or anything like that here, but there we do have uh, foxes, um, the red fox, which uh, they are, they do very, very well here. We've basically built civilization in the UK to, to really feed foxes. And at lambing time for the sheep farmers, they will take lambs. They will take songbirds and uh, ground nesting birds. They have a, they do have a noticeable ecological impact on the landscape because they have no other predator, other than starvation or humans. So or vehicles. Um, so those are the t- control are the two things that normally are part of that negotiation. Um, and sometimes it is other things like there was one farm here where i um i do their trees if they have a a difficult tree that needs cutting up or chainsawing or um, processing um myself and one or two other people would be called in to to do that because we have chainsaws and and some of the time to do it so it does cost me time but at the moment i have never paid a penny financially to hunt um Mm. you can do that here you there are places where you if, if you want access for land where it's closer to a city or where it's more um there's more competition then paying to access is more likely but that's as much of a that's as much of a marker of how popular hunting has become um particularly driven by american culture and TV shows on Netflix and YouTube videos and stuff like that. People want to go out and hunt deer who have no connection otherwise to the rural area. They just want to come out and hunt deer because they've seen it on TV. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute, but I probably have set up a whole list of questions again. Haven't I? You, you get to hunt deer because in, in I mean, that's part, you get to hunt deer on the, on these lands in exchange for for uh the predator control bunny hunting and your work as a as a arbor arborist yeah it depends where the deer are but for a lot of the farmers we have the deer population has pretty much doubled in the last 20 years here Why so is that? lack of hunters 
Oh. And no, and no, we don't have we don't have bears. We don't have any other predators. So the deer. But you say lack of hunters, but you said hunting seems to be becoming more popular there. Yeah, it's still with that firearm certificate thing. The the, the thing to get a rifle. I think there's only 150,000 holders in the UK mm. out of a population of nearly 69 million. Because you have to secure permission somewhere before you can even get the rifle, right? Yeah, basically. So it's it's a tick and tock. Yeah. Process. What if you what if you lose permission? And do you have to give give up the rifle? It, when you come to your, it's a five year renewal process for the certificate. And say hypothetically, you lost all of your permissions, and you you pissed off every farmer in the in the <laughs> valley, and you had nowhere else to shoot, and you did you weren't a member of a target rifle club. Then yes, theoretically, you would you wouldn't have a good reason at your next renewal to go for it. But I. I don't know enough about the the process for that, but it isn't a, they don't ring the farmer and say, yep, has he still got permission to shoot there? It's just more of a case of you get an interview. You, the, the police literally come to your house when you do your renewal and they sit down and have a cup of tea with you and ask you leading questions about things, about your behavior with firearms and your knowledge of safe backstops and hunter safety and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um because also they they specify it's not just oh you can own any rifle now it's you specify which calibers you want to own so on on your firearm certificate and i can once we get off the podcast that i can show you i can show you mine on screen uh you can specify say you want a 22 rimfire and a 17 hmr and a 223 and a 243 and a 308 or a six and a half creedmoor and you've got to have a good reason for each one of those and uh, moderators uh, as we call them sort of silencers um suppressors they are there's no external paperwork for that but you have to list it as an item so for each one of my calibers on my firearm certificate it says you can have i have this rifle and the moderator this rifle and a moderator this rifle and a moderator and it's kind of expected that you will have a, a moderator a suppressor for every rifle or at least for every caliber oh oh that's different than here. Here you got yeah. to go through extra steps to to have a a silencer. Um, yeah, there's extra steps you have to go through. Um, permitting. Why is why is it why is it that you that you do things in exchange for hunting permission? but you offer incentives but money isn't among them is that a matter of principle or just because you're watching your finances it's because i'm poor mainly um that's so you would, <laughs> so you would pay for access if, if you ha had more money i don't know it's one of those it's a hypothetical because it hasn't come up but i I don't have a huge amount of free time and this is one of my favorite activities to do is to wander along one of the farms that I shoot on at sunset in the middle of summer, looking, just looking at the landscape, looking at the history in the landscape. And if I was paying to be there, I don't think I'd have the same connection to it. Um, mm -hmm. That's so what I was driving at. Cause yeah, it, it, it's to me, it's 
it, it would, I don't do either. I do work projects mm. to facilitate access, but not just for myself. It's to yeah. facilitate access for everyone. Yeah. So I guess the next lower lower that and that that's completely pure from my perspective the next lower rung in terms of purity mm. is would be doing work projects to get access just for myself and i think mm. i would i would do that the the level i won't what it won't stoop to is is paying paying for access just for myself um and 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 i i i i kind of with with my podcast and everything i'm saying it's kind of a settled position for me that's it's a hard stop for me and and it's easy for me to arrive at that as a stance because Mm -hmm. i live in a state where there are Accession initiatives, government programs that pay ranchers and farmers, they call it an inconvenience fee, but it's a pretty freaking high inconvenience fee. You can get 25 grand a year to let Ooh. the public on to hunt. Oh, God. Wow. So okay. when, when, when people lease up land in my state, they, they, it is the biggest fuck you yeah. to everybody else. It, it, because uh, it's not like nobody would hunt there. It, that, that they're just take, they're make it creating they're not they're creating an opportunity mm. for themselves at the expense of everybody else. Mm. And it it hurts my heart, man. It really does. Yeah. I, You'll I, sit I, this podcast. One way is, there's a dozen ways of saying what I'm trying to do. Probably more, but one of them is about let's look out for our fellow everybody else in the hunting community you know so that that's where i come down the money thing i didn't want to turn it into a big thing about this because we have i have a lot more questions i want to ask you but it's it it, because i mean we we arranged this what a month ago and we're trying to in that time since i've been trying to think i need to formulate some clear arguments or at least some clear um assessments of what the situation is here and the the access to land overall is very, very different to over there. Um, so we don't have public land hunting. There is no equivalent of that. Right. Every single inch of land that somebody is shooting on legally is they have written permission somewhere from somebody specific to them, or at least to the organization that they've paid to be in to hunt there. And there's so, probably not hunting nonprofits that try to facilitate access for everybody or anything like that. And the prior fish and game management agency does nothing to facilitate average access for the average Joe or anything like that either. Right? No, it's very, there's different. There are a couple of different, um, NGOs and sort of, and, uh, non-profit organizations. So there's the British association of shooting and conservation. There's the game and wildlife conservation trust. Um, there are a couple of others, uh, as well. He'll be annoyed now that I didn't mention them. Um, but they, they are the kind of like hobby associations and sometimes professional associations, but they are the more like lobbying 
groups. Um, so at the moment, the big discussion is around lead ammunition here. Um, our equivalent of, o of uh, OSHA, the HSE, Health and Safety Executive, have just recommended that in the next five years, we ban all lead ammunition, not just wild fouling, not just certain things, it's just everything, air guns, rim fires, all lead ammunition will be gone, which would effectively, if that happened, that would effectively kill off quite a few calibers, quite, quite a few different rifle types, um, and certainly any shotgun made before 1950. Oh, um, and it would destroy a lot of human teeth. Yeah. Um, I have, uh, you know, when I was a kid, lead was still legal, and I remember biting down on on BBs and waterfowl, and it, it didn't feel good, but I never broke a teeth, to, a tooth. I have a missing tooth, you can see right there, <laughs> and I have three crowns, mm. all from biting down on steel shot. Now, but anyway, I, I'm in as much as, and I haven't followed the science. And this, I, I think it's pretty settled with respect to waterfowl and the harm it does there. I don't know about with terrestrial birds and stuff like that. Like, I suspect there's some pretty good evidence. But where I are these group? Okay, a couple questions. Where do you come down on that? And are these groups? advocating for getting rid of lead uh, no. or, or advocating against it so the it's the hsa is a is a government kind of government organization it's not related to a political party it's just part of the machinery of the state um so they make the recommendation but it will be parliament um it will be voted on in parliament as a decision but they will make the recommendation so the shooting organizations the uh, non-profits they have made statements and made arguments for it so i think the british association of shooting and conservation have probably been the most vocal on it but i might be wrong they have said that they propose that instead anything smaller than a six and a half creedmoor in a rifle should stay as lead because there are no viable alternatives that are stable that group well that are um safe and humane to use but anything bigger than that yes there are there's a it seems to work and there are alternatives um and for uh shotguns i think they've said for phase transition to steel shot or bismuth or whatever and they've also they've been talking about that for a couple of years and that's caused some contention here because some people see it as that that organization by even mentioning transitioning away from lead shot for shotguns you have immediately started a downward spiral that can be never recovered whereas i personally take the view it was going to happen anyway so you may as well be ahead of the curve and at least part of the discussion but they are like making the slippery slope argument yeah as opposed to just as it, as it relates to lead yeah it's, it's not like what they're going to take away the lead then they're going to want to take away the gun it's not like they're doing that oh yeah we have there are british shooting forums and anyone any of your listeners can go over to them and see the comments on there it's probably similar to what you'd have over there but they are very this is just a ploy from the from organizations to make a soft ban on shooting any animal and yeah. get rid of hunting so it's it's always some anonymous internet idiot I just, who's always posting that i hate the slippery slope argument in any yeah. domain it's like there's there's so much no, nuance with law like <laughs> Um, you, you could just, pl you could play, you could just make absurd arguments that way all day long. Like, 
um, like speed limits. Oh, what? Now it's going to be 70. Well, what next? It's going to be five, and then it'll be faster to walk or, or age of consent. Oh, now it's 18. Well, not, then they're going to make it 70. Then you're going to have to date grandma. You know, it's like mm. everything has, is a continuum. Yeah. So I, and, I, I just, yeah, that, those arguments are always annoying. And as like yourself, as somebody who's on the internet under his own name, I always feel slightly different when I'm arguing with Squirrel Hitter 57. So I don't know anything <laughs> about them or their background or what their stance on this is. And I feel at least I'm here under my own name. And I know is this- if you want to. Yeah, Are you talking about like on hunt forums or something like that, and on Twitter and Instagram and things. Okay. If you, if you, you know, if you, a lot of those conversations happen there as well, which is very different to if you were at a meeting with somebody or a regional meeting for that organization. At least you can ask them. Well, are you a gamekeeper? Are you a farmer? Are you an ecologist? What's your, or are you just a really keen hobbyist? Because. <laughs> their background and expertise yeah yeah i had to i had to develop social media hygiene very Mm. quickly a couple years ago because i was i would i was off the like off the radar man until i wrote these couple articles Mm. and then i was wondering what people thought of them and i got online and and just the vitriol you know and and I even yeah. went so far as to engage. Uh, I got on the hunt forums myself, and I'm engaging in, with these people. And mm. it was a bleak situation for me because I'm not as very stable. I don't know if they would give me a rifle over there or not. You know, like if I went to <laughs> I, I, but, uh, no, no comment. <laughs> but uh, um. I'm kind of immune to it now. I, I just, I did a little test the other day. I did get on a hunt forum for a few minutes and there was some hate, but there was a lot of love too. And, and yeah, it, didn't, the, it just didn't have the impact. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's the thing. It's right when you don't know who it is. Or... Yeah. I'd like it's... to, I invited, when I, when I was on there, I was like, please. Cause there was a lot, several pages of people mm. commenting. I was like, please, here's my email address. I'm looking to have, discussions with people i disagree with Hmm. and i know and nobody reached out to me and so uh i bet i really would like to have more discussions with people that think that disagree with me people that think we need more dead and dying wildlife on the computer and 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 think that that's good for access and and don't it doesn't prevent the leasing of the land etc etc we have that the social media thing we have that problem here because um, hunting is not culturally popular here um in the same way that even eating meat if you pay attention to popular culture and what's on tv what's on advertisements and things like that you'd assume that everyone is vegan now by the way things are marketed in the uk in in the uk um and no more fish and chips on the TV shows and stuff like that. Oh, it's like well, the, you might have that in the in the TV show, but then it'll skip to the advert break, and then there'll be McDonald's advertising their plant their plant based menu in between something else and something else, and then another vegan thing. Hunting, there isn't a broad popular base for it, at least within the corridors of power in London. Um, the and I don't think our the case of any kind of people who source food through hunting in the UK, I don't think 
that community helps itself by engaging on social media because the moments because somebody who's trying to make a name for themselves on social media could be quite young there could be a man in their 50s um but it's they try to emulate maybe what they see in the states and maybe what they see elsewhere on social media with um what they're posting because they want to be a cool social media influencer and then every night they're posting a photo of two dead foxes mm. or or showing you know how many foxes we've removed from this land tonight just shows how many predators there were here but they'll literally post a photo of the back of a trick pickup truck with three or four dead foxes in and then that just fires out there representing the hunting community onto social media mm-hmm. with no thought to what that's going to do whereas and this is in a country where that where hunting is way more divisive than the US. Oh yeah. Yes. Um and then they will that's, engage that's so rude, man. Yeah, it's it's worth a dive for if you go and find some UK hunting social media accounts and see how they post and talk about it. And then they're always they're always posting as some anonymous name um and not an anonymous account whereas they are representing effectively the rest of the shooting community in the UK. I've become very, very careful about what I post online. And even one of our clients got upset with me recently because I posted a photo of um, a really close up photo of a deer, like, and I was, Mm. I was um, skinning the deer and a really close up photo. And I was talking about connection to meat and where it comes from and why and and just the, the awareness of where meat comes from in the current food chain and the current food supply um, for, a, for a modern Western country. And one of my clients from the photography side of things got quite upset because I posted a photo of meat. Mm. So it's, you see the, the, you see the negative impact of something that I think is fairly innocuous because it didn't say where it was or anything about it. It was just really a close. It's probably still the most recent photo on my Instagram. Um, that became a an almost a corporate discussion problem within the company I was providing oh. photos for because oh. can this you know can we buy things from this guy who's still who's showing photos of meat? Oh, I wish it was that way over here. Yeah, um, so it's still yeah, up there. Here, but you, it, you you it'd become a corporate discussion if you weren't showing enough dead shit. <laughs> yeah, well. Oh, which way, which direction to talk to go in now? Because we've got a couple of I want to ask about these Fox guys. So there's like a dude that like is like, I'm Fox man. Follow Come. me. I've got 5,000 followers. And he doesn't even oh. get his real name, but he's like Mr. Fox guy or whatever. The Fox hunting influencer guy. Stuff people like that. There's a, there are people like that, but they're not, they haven't got big commercial support necessarily. But there are a few YouTube channels that do, that talk about nothing but foxing and predator control but they it, it, they try don't, to don't brits just pile on these people yeah they do in the comments or but there's enough people that are like right on bro it's difficult i mean with instagram and youtube with their algorithms it's difficult for that kind of content to become super popular anyway because mm. it doesn't get pushed in front of an audience unless you're looking for it uh-huh. i think there's more of an issue with not just two or three people doing it who are big within the hunting community it's the other 200 people trying to be that person yeah by posting the same thing but uh, oh yeah like, it's like the monkey see monkey do thing shit with mm, with the, yeah that's why i hate i don't hate hunting celebrities i'm trying to i hate the being of a hunting so i hate the act of being a hunting celebrity 
and well, that's one of the main things I hate mm. about it is it, it it just inspires more people to to try to do it. Yeah, you know? everything has an outcome, and everything has every every action we take, everything we say, everything we do, everything we post online has an impact, has an effect. And I think sometimes people don't think about that. They don't think that they are important enough to have an effect. But what somebody in the north of England posts about fox hunting or posts about shooting rabbits or something like that will that that will have an effect in the butterfly flapping its wings on mm-hmm. a policymaker somewhere in London. Mm-hmm. Because these people are on social media in their spare time. They're on Twitter, they're on Instagram, they're on YouTube. They see the same stuff. Um American content has a big influence here now. Mm-hmm. Um, social media is a big part of that, but things like Netflix and or Meat Eater on Netflix is one of the bigger shows here, mm-hmm. particularly when it's, you know, they do that thing, you know, top 10 in the UK when the new series season comes out and on podcasts in the UK, um, because I've got a couple of podcast titles in that category, in the wilderness category, which I think you're probably in as well. Mm-hmm. Um the meat eater shows are regularly in the top 20. Yeah. You know what that's going to do? It's going to make it. So my hypothesis is if that continues, it's going to make it so that cutting down a tree, isn't going to be enough. Yeah. Richard. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the problem with hunting media is yep. it, it makes everybody want to do it. And then there'll be a, some rich people that can really afford to be like, I want to do that, you know, and then they just start to freaking make it into a money, a money grab. It is that what I'm finding with, with, because of the, the outdoor world, and we, when we say outdoors in the UK, we generally mean outdoor recreation, mountaineering, kayaking, mountain biking, running, that kind of stuff, not, um, not hunting. Uh, or when you hear people from the outdoor community, and I've got a lot of friends in that community still because that's where I was for well over a decade. Um, I've had people, particularly during COVID and the lockdowns here that were pretty strict. Um, they were contacting me and saying they wanted to get into hunting because this has made them realize that their food supply is not secure. So they were asking me where the, where they could go bow hunting on public land in the, in the UK. And straight away with that sentence, you know that that has only come from Joe Rogan or Meat Eater or something like Ray that because Orange, yeah, campaigns, etc., etc., etc. Yeah, because hunting with a bow is completely illegal here. Oh, is it really completely illegal? And we don't have and we don't have public lands you can hunt on. So straight away, <laughs> so you just know, yeah, yeah. Exactly. They weren't doing some research and then asking somebody to know who does it. They had heard a concept about hunting and their entire influence on hunting and meat through uh hunting that had come had come from really your side of the water isolate the effect of media it does know? and those shows for them to be in the app in the apple podcasts um charts at that level in the uk it means that they are getting more downloads per week there than we have firearms holders in the uk mm-hmm. it's into the hundreds of thousands which means then American, because it's English language, American hunting content and American hunting shows have an effect here, but it doesn't really affect the hunting community as much as it does the wider community. So I've always wondered about that. I've always wondered what percent of people that are that that 
consume hunting media don't hunt. Mm. I'd say it's quite high. I mean, it, here it's definitely very, it's got to be high because there aren't, a, I could walk around shaking hands with every person who hunts animals in the UK with a, with a gun and I could probably get through it in a couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's um, some point at which if I, let's say I found out it was 50% mm. here, I'd probably just stop this podcast at that point. Yeah. Because the only, I think the only hope we have in the U S for maintaining some high quality hunting opportunity that doesn't require Mm. paying for access is if the hunting community as a whole comes together and stops, stops funding hunting media. Mm -hmm. And, but it, but it could be if only 50% of people that consume hunting media actually hunt, then mm. it, it starts to look like society values gets more derives more value from hunting media than from hunting it itself. Mm. If that's the case, then I, I just need to shut up. It, it's difficult to have to, you can't find out what the conversation is like until you start having that conversation. And then you are immediately part of the problem. I don't think, I think it's a Schrodinger's cat problem that you cannot, you cannot engage with hunting media as a subject without becoming part of hunting media, unless you're just talking to somebody via email. Well, there might be some daylight between us there because I don't think that I'm in any way inspiring people to hunt, but you're part of hunting media now by having a podcast. But there's only two, there's only, there's only, there's only two things I disagree with, with hunting media Mm. showing dead and dying wildlife. And if you look at everything I've said and everything I've written, Mm. you will never find me say anything beyond that. Where does, cause I'm, I'm I'm asking questions for you now because this is. Because my 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 knowledge of this is a combination of your shows and the same as everyone else's. I listen to I listen to those other shows. The with regard to hunter recruitment and things like that is uh, from what I gather. Your argument is that there is money to be made from new hunters because you can sell them gear, you can sell them guns, you can sell them things that are related to hunting, and you can also get them to watch your media and consume it. Mm-hmm. So that is the financial incentive for businesses related to hunting to recruit new hunters. And is the that nonprofits, correct? yeah. And the nonprofits as well. Okay. Nobody in the hunting media and no, mm. none of the nonprofits, I don't think anybody in their heart of hearts is wringing their hands about mm. not enough hunters. Oh boy, we sure, what are we going to do if we don't have more hunters? Mm. I think it's, I think it's utter bullshit. I mm. think the only reason nobody that nobody is driven by that. Nobody's mm. driven by that. The, the nonprofits have become like the advertising arm for the hunting industry. Yeah. Um, I, I hunt with hunting influencers and mm-hmm. I, they get just as frustrated as me when they, when they go some places or more or more when they go places place and it's overrun with people. Yeah. And, and I, I've known hunting influencers my whole life. Like some of these people, the people hunting influencers, I know I've had lifelong relationships with and they didn't give a shit 
about there being more hunters until the mm. day they started making money off hunting. Yep. So is what's the forgive my ignorance again then. So you are of an age to own a firearm in the UK in the USA. You do not have any felonies or anything like that. So you can do it legally. Um what's the kind of the cost then for going hunting? Is it just the fuel it takes to go to drive to public land and how much does a tag cost? Because I know about the lotteries and things, but how oh, much are you putting if, in? If you're in your own state, it's trivial. If you're yeah. if you're not, then it can be very expensive. Like, oh, so like if you wanted to come from a, a eastern state out to Montana to hunt elk, you're looking, I think a combination tag is I don't think I think it's twelve hundred bucks for a deer elk mm. combo. And that and now because of all the media hype and BS, good luck drawing it. Yeah. That's I mean, that's something we we don't have a direct equivalent of that here, but you do have I mean, you can, because you can pay to hunt here. We don't have tag systems in the same way, but we do have seasons and it's then controlled by the land access. But if I contacted the right people today, I could pay something similar to that amount to be part of a syndicate to go and shoot on some land in Scotland, say, mm -hmm. and to hunt deer there where you are guaranteed to shoot. Uh, but a friend of mine is in, a, a friend of mine does that. He is a firearms dealer. He sell. he's a, he's a you know he sells guns he has a gun shop um he is a part of a syndicate that has a patch of land i don't know how many acres it is it's probably a couple of thousand acres where they shoot deer up there but they the deer num they are encouraged by the government there to reduce the deer's the deer numbers down to as close to zero as possible effectively um or at least the books and things so he can go back go up there and come back with 10 deer in the back of the truck um and he would be paying sort of around that kind of dollar amount or the equivalent of it. Um, so that kind of thing exists here, but I've always wondered this with you and the tag systems there. So if you're in state, say if you were in state in Montana and you're going for the same elk tag, is that $50? Is it a hundred dollars? Um, I can't even remember, but not, nah, it's not 50 bucks it's less than that. Oh, right. So it's less than the diesel or fuel you put oh, in the truck together. Yeah. Even, you'll hear hunters bitch about it. I think they should, the tag should be way mm. more, but, uh, you'll hear hunters bitch about tag prices, but it's a pittance. Yeah. It is a pittance. It is, it's a, it, it's compared to what you spend on fuel and gear. Mm. And if you're leasing then you're spending and if you're hiring an outfitter you know it's it just it's nothing the tag is nothing because i've always i've always wondered that because i hear this you know the argument about access to land and i've listened to almost all of your episodes up until we've recorded this so that was always the the question mark in my mind is like just how much are they talking for this and how much how much so say somebody was paying to lease land from one of those farms that was being paid previously to allow the public access onto that what would they they presumably be paying the farmer more than that twenty five thousand dollars or so a year to access it to exclude everyone else the that twenty five thousand dollars like that's for a big place okay the amount they get is based on the number of hundred days that they allow right but, uh i just 
had a guy on. I'm trying not to have this podcast not be. I'm trying to have a national conversation, not just a conversation about the Western U.S. But okay. I just had a guy on two days ago that he leases 50 acres outside of Nashville. I actually got just got I just he just decided he just emailed me this morning and decided he's no longer going to lease that 50 acres. <laughs> so uh, I've changed one heart in mind. Uh, but he and his buddy leased 50, 50 acres mm. for fifteen hundred bucks. So, but out here you you could you could there's there's places that are getting leased up for way more than that twenty grand thirty grand you know that's big money oh yeah but Mm. but the thing is like your buddy that goes to scotland Mm. i don't think i think when you go out and you formed a a connection with the landowner this is what i'm banking on (laughs) everything i'm saying you formed a connection with the landowner you put some sweat equity into it yep and you shoot a bunny your sense of accomplishment is 10 times greater mm-hmm. than him going up and and paying all that money yep i this so it's not just the out-of-pocket expense it's that it's that you, you, you didn't get it by your wits you didn't get it by I mean, hunting to me, hunting to me is, is about, is, is about negotiating the challenges Mm. in a very grassroots way. Would you, would you, would you willing to get your pocketbook out? There's no limit to how easy you can make it. You can hire an outfitter that'll drive you right up to the freaking animal and you can shoot it. In which case, you've done nothing. I mean, make, executing the shot is probably 5% of what it takes to, to, to be successful in a hunt. Yeah, because that sounds more like the African hunting model, yeah. in a way. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and it's uh, rampant here. Right? So what people do in, in increasingly more increasingly more of our wildlife is harvested in that way. Mm. You hire an outfitter that's excluded everybody else, and then he drives you out there and you shoot something. And then you go put it on Instagram like you're some guy kind of we, like hero. Is it do you think it's it's time as well as part of this that if you're somebody who's got the money, you 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 work a lot of hours in the city or whatever it is, if you're you've got two days to go and hunt, you don't want to go you want guarantee kill. Well, you you got two days to go out and I don't I wouldn't say it's hunting. I I just don't in my mind, in my mind, it's just not hunting. Is it? It's assassination. Out. Yeah, it's just, it's just not. It's just not hunting. I mean, I, I'd rather just not do it personally. Mm-hmm. I would, I would rather like you have 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 some chickens, which I do, I guess. Mm-hmm. I, like you say, you have some uh, livestock on your. I'd rather get my meat that way, and like you have a garden. Yeah. Then, then. It's. I think it's. It's just 
rude to lock everybody else out. I, there's no sense of accomplishment. It's not what got me into this in the first place. What got me into this was in the first place was going around the lake I lived on and picking up crawdads or spearing a frog or catching a fish. And it wasn't about, there was no money paying for it involved. It, it just, it just, it makes it come something completely different. It's not hunting. And yeah. It, yeah, and now it's just it's gotten so bad here that even our nonprofits are teaching people how to writing articles about how to lease up land. You know, National Deer Association, National mm. Wild Fe- Turkey Federation, they both have articles how to how to find your hunting lease. Onyx, the ma- digital map yeah. company, Go Hunt. Go Hunt's this app that people use to like originally was to figure out which parts of public land which public land hunting units had good hunting for x y and z now now it's become an app just that people use to buy landowner sponsored tags Mm -hmm. so this is the government gives you tags it's welfare (laughs) the government gives you tags uh if you own land and then you get to sell them to people. And Onyx is like now the broker of that. They, wow. they, they uh, sell the tags for you on their, on their platform. And then one of our nonprofits here, a big one, it's supposed to be about backcountry hunting. Mm. And, and back, it's called Backcountry Hunters and mm. Anglers. And they're supposed to be like a public access champion. And like they take money from Go Hunt. Randy Newberg, who's supposed to be a like public land access guy, I think his heart's in the right place. He just came on my podcast. I really enjoyed our discussion, but I really struggle with the fact that he takes money from Go Hunt, you know. Mm. So, anyway, so that's, that's well, that's filled in a few gaps. There's a few things in there that I hadn't picked up on from consuming American hunting media, but maybe I should talk a bit about the commercial aspects of hunting here. Then I have and, a question for you. Too, oh, okay. Go for that. Go for the question. Um, do do what? Do you have any sense how much public money farmers get? A lot, um, a lot. Because we're we you, you presumably have heard of Brexit and so yep. Britain leaving the European Union. So for a good few decades in there, we were part of a European wide model of agriculture where farmers were paid to improve land um, it's actually been ecologically troublesome in some areas where farmers were being paid to effectively destroy habitat at the edges of fields to gain an extra one acre over a hundred uh, spread across a hundred acre field of field margin to get rid of the long grass and the weeds to make it so they, they could get a little bit more money and they were actively encouraged to do that that has now changed a little bit um in the last 20 years or so but particularly since brexit there was there's all sorts of discussions about how to change that model um and farmers get a huge huge amount of money but they, it's very it's very expensive to farm um uh, and we our farming models are slightly different to over here to to what you have because we have very small fields um i mean like the I've got two fields here and each one is half an acre. We've got two half acre fields and one one acre field. Um, but 
the neighbors, the plots are, there's a seven acre field, a five acre field, a 10 acre field. So they're not huge field areas. So it's different type of management, but there's too much to go into there. One of the things that shooting and hunting has done, particularly around bird shooting, um, has give, has been a way for farmers to get money from another source, from a privately funded source commercially to leave some of that habitat there because Europe were paying them to basically remove it, but the local shoot, the local hunting club kind of commercial shoot was paying them to plant things there as bird cover. So um, it's, it's a bit of a, it's a very money-based system, but I don't know the numbers on UK agriculture, but if anyone's got any time, if they want to watch, if you've got an Amazon prime account, you can go and watch Clarkson's farm and that'll give you an idea of what farming in the UK is like Jeremy Clarkson, the guy off top gear, he bought a farm and he went through a year of trying to make money from farming. Which and it top year. Uh, it was the biggest car show in the world oh. when it was, uh, when it was on. So some on guarantee, one of the six listeners you've got has heard of it. <laughs> um, but it was literally the biggest car show by far in the world. It's probably the biggest TV show in the world when it, at its height, but he was, um, it's my mom or one of the other maybe. five. <laughs> <laughs> um i'll send you a link afterwards but that he goes he went from being a car journalist and a big tv personality to being a farmer and he went through at the very last episode was his end of the season and going through he after he'd been farming for 12 years for 12 months with full-time staff big machines uh harvesting um crops had animals there as well and he worked out he made about 170 pounds before the subsidy from the government oh shit yeah yeah so it's it wouldn't exist without it It it's a it's a tiny tiny amount um so i don't know what the figures are but it is the biggest chunk um but it's still it's divisive about what farmers get but in terms of access for the public they do not get any money at the moment for access to the public so we have what i'm getting at and this is something i i'm not gonna i'm not doing gonna i am res, I, w- I would sign on and help if somebody wanted to tr- ex- affect some yeah. change with mm. government incentives and government policies mm. but I, i'm just so pessimistic about changing anything with every time i contact like try to work within the system i get freaking nowhere so I, i'm just not gonna waste my time you know i'm trying to make an appeal to the hunting community but i don't I don't, I'm open to this. How is it that this kind of ticks me off? How is it that these people take so much public money, Mm. but they don't provide any access? You know, I, I think it should be a precondition. I think if the world, I think it would make the world a better place. If a precondition to accepting public money was allowing access. We, yeah, I can't even imagine where you'd start with that over there. For here, if you're not hunting, if you're just hiking or something like that, you have a lot of public access here. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So, okay. you, so I so guess we, I meant hunting access. But yeah, well, it, it's, a, it's a good analogy maybe um, because it does affect farmers um, here and it affects landowners. And there's a sort of, you can maybe see some of the effect of poor outdoor behavior has on landowners and land managers and the wildlife and the ecology of those places. So here, um, there are public footpaths, public rights of way. There is a whole spider web network across the UK. It's basically linking together every village to every farm 
right across the network. I think there's 140,000 miles or so of public footpaths in the UK and 20,000 miles of bridleways, which is what used to be so you could ride a horse down and you still can, but uh, people use them for cycling now. And I read also, an article a few years ago about all this, how it got really diminished for a time in Great Britain, but there was a lot of public in, uh, pressure put on to yep. open up access in that way, right? That- yeah. Um, and there was it, we've had about 20 years in England and Wales of something called the Countryside Rights of Way Act, which added on to the footpaths. It added on about six, 7,000 square miles of land where there aren't any trails, but you can just wander at will. So you can just wander around. But the, you could, these are farmers' fields and mm. areas of forestry and things like that. So on the, either side of the valley here on the uplands, it's sheep grazing land or commercial forestry. And both of those are designated as public access. So you can stand there bare naked th- at three in the morning and you are you're behaving lawfully or maybe not a naked part but mm-hmm. you can stand there and have access to it but you people use that then for walking dogs and other outdoor recreation and things like that which means they cause damage they they chase sheep they chase in uh, sheep that are in lamb so that they then abort or they might the dogs attack the sheep um there's all sorts of other problems that go on with public access to private land that is the farmers are not incentivized for doing that and actually they are penalized in a way because they have to maintain all of the public access points gates uh step over styles and things like that that's actually yeah, down well, to the landowner learn to control yeah. themselves and control their dogs are going to lose all that well it's currently if you are the farmer and it is your sheep um and there is a dog um worrying sheep or attacking sheep in the process of doing it you are legally allowed to shoot that dog mm-hmm. but there's there's to be like several steps you go through but we found as the the general public wants more and more access to the land but this is another debate going on at the moment it's starting to be create an urban rural divide people who work and manage the land saying you've got a lot of access already and more access won't improve the situation for nature or for where your food comes from and you have the other side of it who are a mostly urban population saying we want access to all of the land because it's good for ourselves it's a selfish self-interested thing i know that's not the same as what this podcast is about but it might give you an idea you know, it, it, it's a kind of a bizarro world parallel um, yeah. conversation because yeah. it's public access on I land. I want to have a strict set. I mean, I just yeah. went on a 20 minute digression about free dry diving. So it's like. <laughs> uh, it's it's yeah. something. Yeah. Oh, well, everybody. Everybody's entitled to their, their opinion, man. I just. I just. We're born onto this little tiny speck in the cosmos. Mm. This little infinitesimal little ball. And then then we don't even get to see a huge chunk of that. Yep. It just seems so unfair to me, man. I mean, I'm not I'm like I'm not trying to pass laws. I'm not trying to, I, I just that's just the way, but it does seem unfair. I'm just, I, I wouldn't I would never deny I have seven acres and they have, mm. and there's trespassing allowed signs on, yep. on it. And if, if I, and I keep saying, if I had 700,000 signs and signs would 
7,000, 700,000 acres of signs would, would read the same. I probably would manage the hunting so that it, to maximize the, ple- the, the enjoyment mm-hmm. that it brought people, you know? Um, but I, I just couldn't, I couldn't say, no, no, you, you other citizen of this little speck, you don't get to see this. This is for me to see. Yeah. That just drives me nuts. But that's obviously other people don't see it that way. No, there's, does it matter where you are in terms of population density? If you were in a state with a higher population density, so that that trespassing would become a daily hourly occurrence would that change your opinion do you think it would i would always there's 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 no way that there Mm. i I would always manage it somehow Mm -hmm. as necessary like if people were just shitting up the place Mm. and um and, and leaving gates open or whatever i would just find another way to make it work i would presumably people would be enjoying my land and they would care about maintaining that access. And I'd, and I would reach out to them and say, guys, gals, this is what we need to keep this working. Hmm. We need some self-policing. We need to have a a cleanup day. I mean, I'm trying to work with you. I want to keep this open to you. I want you to be able to experience this land, but we got to make some changes. I would always be, the default would always mm. be to let people come on. I think this culture plays a big part of that as well. So what the average person would do in that situation, you know, you give them access to your land, what they then do with it. I think the culture of that, of that people matters because we have, I mean, just over on the other side of the North Sea, we have the Scandinavian countries there and they have quite good public access. They have, Alamansraten, this all man's rights thing, where basically unless it's farmland, you have right to roam. You can wander, you can camp, you can hunt in some of the uh no you can in some of the countries, but you might need to be part of a hunting organization, but you can hunt. Um when I've worked over there and I I've done stuff over there, the general public's opinion about how land is used, how you should behave on the land, is very, very different to what happens here because the laws in scotland are quite similar to um the scandinavian uh access because that's that's what it was modeled on and we've had that since 2003 2004 i think they changed the laws in scotland right to rome law yeah there's always the land reform act is what changed it in scotland but that was it means that you can as long as it's not somebody's garden or an enclosed area um you can camp you can walk you can uh light fires you can't hunt still you need permission to do that but Mm -hmm. you can wander at will the places that are most popular with tourists and even with locals, you know, people who live within Scotland, they, you can really see the sign of that. If I presumably you have the same thing. If you go to any tourist hotspot over where you are, you get litter, you get people behaving poorly, you get people lighting fires where they shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Um, you get uh, broken glass at the edge of every swimming area, at the edge of a lake, you know, all these things that are, I would see as being negative human interactions with that landscape. We see more of that. I see more of that in the UK than I saw when I was in Scandinavia. And I think Mm. that's cultural difference despite the same access rights. So maybe your cultural differences over there would lead to a a third outcome, would lead to a different outcome. Mm. Mm -hmm. 
there definitely needs to be something in this country, lands that are made available to hunters through government programs. A mm-hmm. lot of times those land, the, the, the landowner ends up taking them out of those programs because of poor hunter behavior, litter, um, uh, driving on muddy roads, mm. acting like they own the place. Uh, so that, that, that I, I wish, I wish, I wish we had the, the, the Scandinavian mindset with that. Mm. I think there'd be more hunting opportunity here. We did. But the, the, the hunters that behave well over there, do you think, did they learn that from their parents, from their family, from the people who taught them to hunt? I, I suspect so. I mean, people just, most people just have a general sense of decency, I think. But the problem is, you know, you got one jackass that comes on the place all year and he does something ridiculous. That that's you know but I yeah I'd say that I mean I I I don't I don't I know lots of people that would never leave the gate open mm. or wouldn't litter or would have the sense not to rut up somebody's road or call the person mm. at four in the morning to ask if they can hunt because it's in a the the ranch that they're calling is in some kind of program just basic human decency but that said that said i've been i advocated for a time for a mandatory training program like if you Mm. want to hunt land made accessible through government programs you should have to take a training program uh obviously like i say with all things that i anytime i interact with government i get zero i get nowhere so i Mm -hmm. even though I, I, i i the alarm bells are going off about how many places we're losing access to because of that crap and still i couldn't get anywhere with that idea what i was trying to do with that was have it be cautionary tales like the Mm. training program would be 50 percent allegories where it would be used to be able to hunt this ranch now we can't because a hunter did x Mm. and i thought maybe even the worst actors would be like well yeah I, i do want to be able to go hunting next year so maybe i will Maybe I won't shit hmm. in front of the sign-in box or whatever, you know. Is that a thing? Yeah, we've lost two ranches in eastern Montana where I live from that. Why would people do that? What's that? Uh, they just <laughs> are they doing it while signing in, or are they? Or is it? Yeah, like you got to pull up in the morning to hunt. And you <laughs> just had your morning coffee, and now you got to go, and then they just yeah. yeah. We we. I mean, I see that kind of behavior here in some of those other hiking hotspots and the um, the places that they've seen on Instagram and they want to go to. We had a thing in the National Park um, about half an hour's drive to the west of here where it became the secret infinity pool. You know, this thing when you go to a, a spa resort and they've got the the pool where it's you can't see the edge of the pool and it just, it's an overflow going out to the ocean yeah, so, yeah. so there's no horizon. Um, yeah they were saying it's a secret infinity pool and it became a thing for YouTubers and influencers to go there. The whole thing is the header tank for some poor farmer's water system high up on the mountain. And he was get getting, you know, bikini clad 
Instagram model splashing around in there in the secret infinity pool in basically what was his drinking water tank. Oh. Um, Lisa was pretty girls. Well, there were some hairy guys in there as well, but you know, every, you, there's, there's That's for everyone's taste. Yeah, I, I, it, it wasn't me. I know I'm, I know I'm a big bearded guy, but it wasn't me. Um, but you would see that, and then you would see people. You would see toilet paper and the pile, the pile of brown right next to the water there. So not only are they swimming in his pool, they're taking a crap right next to his drinking water. Um, what happened to that? It's still there. You could go every summer, and it's just because it's on up this access land. Um, you get people going there every year. It's just become less popular because people have been there, you know. But you, there'll uh-huh. be there'll become another thing. There'll be become this one place you have to visit, and then suddenly it'll be the 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 ridge that you have to climb, or the place that you have to. You get a everyone's getting a photo of this of a tent on this only area of flat ground on this big mountain ridge. So you put your drone up and get your photo of the tent on the tiny place on the ridge, and you'll get there sometimes there'll be three people all trying to camp on the same spot or mm-hmm. three unrelated people who are all trying to get the same photo because they saw the guy last week get the photo. And so that it's not a hunting thing, but we do see that kind of poor behavior of people trying to emulate what they see elsewhere. Um, we see that more in the hiking in the outdoors uh, community here. Um, but yeah, people never fail to disappoint me. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah. Every year, it just get, my my expectations of the human race do get lowered a little bit. Yeah, um, yeah. Do you ever see that movie Idiocracy? Yeah, I can see how. It's, yeah, it takes everything in society and that's excessive and turns it up to eleven. You know, I, 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 I'm open to the idea that that's where we're going. Yeah, I mean, hopefully I'll be dead before then. That's yeah. what I'm hoping on. Um, I don't I mean, understand depend- the the, the, I, the last thing I would the last place I would want to go mm-hmm. would be a place that some influencer just highlighted on their feed. Yeah, I, I like I like to discover things for myself, mm-hmm. not have it laid out for me. Yeah. This is. I don't tell anyone about the good times I've had in the mountains or on the coast anymore because I don't, people say, Oh, where's a good place to go? And I just say, Oh yeah, that busy place that you've already heard of, go there, please go there. Mm -hmm. But there are places on the, in the middle of a public holiday in the middle of summer on the busiest day of the year, I can still find mountain summits that I have to myself or beaches that no one can get down to, but that's because you have to kayak to get there Mm. Or or you have to walk five miles in to get to this path to get to this bit to the get to this summit you know there are you have to put the miles in and put the work in um that's the same thing with somebody's gonna be like somebody's gonna say to you oh you're just being selfish yeah one thing you're gonna hear yeah i mean like to bring a hunting thing in it's i have friends who because to get a um low powered air rifle so sub 12 foot pounds enough to kill a squirrel or a rabbit at 30 yards mm-hmm. you do not need a certificate you just need to be over 18 and not a criminal so you can go on a you can go on a saturday morning to go and buy one from a gun dealer and then be shooting that afternoon but you still need permission to shoot somewhere so i have friends who do that or you know people are acquaintances even even just random strangers who think they know me because they follow me on twitter 
they contact me and say, well, they've bought an air rifle. They don't have anywhere to shoot. Can you come, can I, can they come and shoot on one of my farms or one of the woodlands that I have permission to shoot? And I always say no. And I have to explain why I'm saying no. It's like, I'm not being a dick. It's just yeah. because I have worked long and hard to negotiate this relationship. And you can say one thing, do one thing, park in the wrong place, do one stupid thing. And you could ruin that whole thing for me so no thanks mm-hmm. um and i've become only through being disappointed i've become less um egalitarian about things and less trusting of other people just because i know it's still the minority but access to land is still so difficult it it's possible but you've got to put the hours in and it's it can be undone so quickly. It's like reputation. You know, you can, you can undo your, you can undo 20 years of work and your reputation in three minutes by saying the wrong thing. Well, you're the one that worked hard. You were the one that valued what you have enough to, to get it for you. No, why, why, I mean, so why would you risk it? I mean, I'm sure that if somebody really wanted to shoot their air rifle and they kept coming back to you and they said the next time you have to cut down a tree can i help yeah then after a while you'd probably be like okay we can go do a little squirrel hunting together or whatever you know yeah that's exactly it or i've got a friend who um he has a crab boat Uh so he doesn't have any shooting permissions but he comes to mine but i go out on his boat yeah it's it is it's an exchange relationship, but it is every all parties are aware of that, and it's. I think it, there's always an exchange, and that's the thing with commercial hunting here that you can either negotiate that access but have less guarantee, or you can pay a lot of money and have the guarantee. But that gives everyone else, I think, looking in from outside the UK, the impression that the only way to hunt is to pay a lot of money. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's maybe the a big takeaway from this discussion is it doesn't it isn't always that way. There's other ways of getting access. I've got a, maybe one quite good way of summing that up then to bring it in, which is to look at commercial pheasant shooting here. So that's possibly the thing people are seeing where you've you got the guy commercial hunting or commercial pheasant hunting. Are you saying the that's hunting where you paid for access? Is that what you're saying? Kind of. So how it works is that you you possibly have seen photos or video clips of this. It's the one where you have maybe seven or eight guys stood there with shotguns. They're all wearing tweed. They've got traditional, the look, even though it's the modern day, they look like the dress for the Edwardian period. Yeah. They're all there with shotguns. And then there's a line of guys somewhere in the woods beating and pushing the pheasants mm-hmm. towards the line of guns. And then they, they fly over and you shoot. So, there's a one at the end of the valley here, um, which the way it works is this. They are a commercial outfit that has paid the landowner. It's a big landowner. They own 12,000 acres or so. Um, they pay the landowner for the exclusive rights to shoot anything on half of that, say. So say about 6,000 acres. So no one else can get a permission to shoot there for the period of that lease. It's very, very commercial, but they're paying tens of thousands of pounds, you know, 30 or 40,000 pounds a year just for the access before they do anything else. They then, even the guy who owns the land now has to actually get permission from the people he's renting the land to, 
to shoot on his own land because mm. all sporting rights, all access to shoot has gone with that permission. So then that shooting organization, that company effectively, they hire one or two people or more to manage that land. So they are gamekeepers. And um, if anyone's listening to this, you listen to that meat eater episode with the guy, the British guy a few weeks ago, he was talking about, you can go to college to become a professional hunter. That's the qualification. That's what you're getting the qualification to do to become it'll, a it'll probably be a few months from now. Cause I have so many unaired podcasts. Yeah. Anyway. The six people will know which one it is. Um, <laughs> the, so you can go to college and gain a qualification to become a gamekeeper, um, which is basically a wildlife manager and business kind of manager for this thing. You in, then in, in Germany, it's a Jägermeister, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's also a, a, a disgusting, like a fortified. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. You drink in alcoholic cough syrup. Yeah. yeah. Um, so a gamekeeper, their job is to keep the game, keep the animals that you want to shoot on that land and remove the predators, manage foxes, um, and create good habitat where those animals will live. So things like pheasants, but you might have uh, partridge. Um, it might be other species, but pheasants, grouse, and partridge tend to be the big ones for the UK for this commercial shooting. Um, they most shoots will raise chicks and they will release them into the wild every year. Mm-hmm. So they might release 12,000 birds or 6,000 birds. We have that. that. We have that. Yeah. Too, you probably know, right? Yeah, yeah. I think it's like, that's more in the East, is it? Um, uh, no, it's, it can, it's, it's in the West too. Yeah. Put, put and take, they call it put and take pheasant. Yeah. Running, uh, yeah. That's kind of the norm here for the commercial thing. And that it's been a big issue this year because a lot of the, the chicks and the eggs come from northern France, and with there's been bird flu there this spring, mm. which means we haven't been able to get the chicks or the eggs over, or those shoots haven't, which means they're not going to run this year because there's no point putting the time in and paying guys to manage the game if you can't get the return at the end of the year in the season. So they've just made people, they've sacked people, they've fired people. Um, so that comes, say, for pheasants, you release those generally in August, and then by October, uh, October, that is the start of the season then for shooting. Um, so the place I'm thinking of, but it would be the same as everywhere else, really. Um, they will then shoot maybe 30 days, 40 days between October and January. Um, they, the one I'm thinking of, they pay, say, £40,000 to rent the land. They need to, they have a bill of around about 300 thousand pounds it costs to run that shoot for the year that's with staff that's with fencing materials that's with fuel feed all these other costs so that over about 30 days or so they need to recoup at least three hundred thousand pounds over 30 days before before they make a pound and the guy who owns the business that does it is doing it for a profit so they make more um that they that gives you an idea of how much the 10 or so guys who are shooting on that day are paying per day to shoot there. It's in the thousands. So that is big business and they are big shoots and everyone knows about them. They know who the biggest ones are. And then there are small ones and you could do a DIY version of this. If you can get a few friends together, you can approach a farm and say, can we do this on your woodland? We'll pay a thousand pounds for the year. We'll buy our own birds. We'll, do everything volunteer everyone does it in their weekends and you can make a small shoot that gets the same kind of thing um does that appeal to you 
Not at all. I've never paid a day to do it in my life. But what we do do I mean, it's just, is it's like so. It's like like I say, I'm raising ch- chickens with the neighbors. It'd be like go open up the door and then yeah, and then shoot at them. It's it is so stupid. I mean, I'm not against the idea in principle because the buy effect of a lot of that of that commercial enterprise is that you now have two or three people who are paid full time to manage that area for wildlife rather than farming. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, and that's 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 the benefit from it. But the yeah. the it's just you know, just to give people an idea of the cultural thing here. The what I do is I don't pay for those days. Um, but my friend has a farm that adjoins that area. And uh, and you get the few birds that leak out of there. They on the days that they're shooting, the next day, basically, there are all those pheasants have now landed on our friends. So now we don't that I would do. That so it's, I would do. It's called rough shooting or walked up shooting, where you just <laughs> rough, go for rough shooting. Yeah, so you just like two of you go out for a walk with shotguns with a dog, <laughs> and you just walk from the, through the farm from one end to the other, and then a pheasant goes up and you shoot it, and you may might come home with two pheasants, and yeah, they get we yeah. eat those. So that's how I do it, and I know that I am piggybacking on a large commercial enterprise by doing that, but I love it's it. it's I, love I wouldn't pay the money to do it, but I think my, like my father did, and I, for years I would fly over and have. And, and help you cut down a tree if you let me be like do a rough shoot with you, man. Oh, that's it's it would appeal to you. But there are so this is I suppose that's the binary thing of the culture here. You can pay a lot of money and have no connection to that landscape and still get this and have the sport and hunt. Or you can be poor like me and take the opportunities where they come and realize you won't have access to everything, but you can make those negotiations over 10, 12 years and, mm-hmm. and get a different life. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose that's the main thing I wanted to get across from my side on this podcast. It was just that when you hear Americans talk about British hunting, particularly if they've been here, that means that they came here, they flew into London, they paid for a couple of days hunting and they flew out again. And they gotcha. think therefore that all hunting you have to pay for. Gotcha. You're the kind of outdoorsman that's, I really admire and respect because I think I just like people that eke out a way to have a hunting, <laughs> a hunting lifestyle, like to yeah. have a hunting lifestyle for themselves, whatever it takes by hook mm. or by crook. Yeah. You know, and that's it's... awesome. That's awesome. That's <laughs> the, you're the, you're the kind of person whose experience I care about. Oh, this is, uh you only get one life. So I'm trying to live it in the way that I want to do. And you can't, you maybe can't be happy with every decision you made in life, but at least you can try and make the next one a better decision. No, man, there's a lot of truth in that. There's a lot of truth in that. Well, at at this point, I'm meant to call you a colonial and I think you're meant to call me a, a uh, subject of the king or something that seems to <laughs> oh dang it there is one more thing i have to ask oh yeah so you you alluded to there's a lot of democrat graphic change in your mm. what were you referring to there so it's actually been the last two years has really accelerated this but um the area of, of the country i'm from is a place called cornwall so it's a county but it's it's the bottom 
if you look at a map of the UK, it's the kind of the long, thin bit that's just north of France. Um, I'm at the, I'm from down there, which is a very rural area, very historically quite poor. Um, you're either a farmer or a fisherman. They was those were the kind of the two industries. Or there was tin mining as well. Most of the basically we were the most important place in the world during the Bronze Age, but everything after that we've kind of gone downhill. Um, that when I was growing up there and it's still happening now, what was happening was that you were getting people from London buying a holiday home. They were buying when somebody died and their old the old guy in the farm died, they were buying the farm for less than they would pay for their annual parking in London and having that as a holiday home and then creating an economy then of holiday homes, which like there are villages where there's no there's only 15 percent of the population there in the winter but in the summer it's full because it's second home or third homeowners from london who were buying up entire communities of people who had lived there for generations and excluding the locals then because you couldn't live and work in farming or fishing or one of those local industries and afford the new housing market prices that's so, happening here too something very yeah I was talking to a friend in Missouri about that just today. Mm. Um, and that you get that, that has started to happen more now in all rural areas, because if you work in a rural area and you work on the land or you work in a rural economy, you earn less generally than you would do if you were taking all of the shifts available at the local supermarket in the town. Mm -hmm. There's no one really making large amounts of money who's actually working on the land. But with better internet, and you know, we've got fiber to the house now, so I'm on 70 megabyte or whatever it is internet that I'm talking to you on right now, it means that you can work remotely. So you can work. And now with COVID and everyone was sent away from the offices to work remotely, now you can live in a cottage in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by fields, and work in London effectively and have no connection to the local area other than somewhere to drive your Range Rover, somewhere to walk your dog in the evenings and just let it loose into the farmer's fields because it looks like a park. So therefore it must be somewhere you can walk your dog and complain about farming activity. So an example of this in the village here. It's so entitled like to do that. Oh, yeah, we had, it was opposite the local school. So the school had been there for a hundred years and they closed it and because of budget cuts and different things. And then they sold the wildflower meadow, the really sort of ancient grazed meadow on the other side of the road to a housing developer that was meant to put affordable housing there. And they just put executive homes there instead. Then the field after that is a belongs to a farmer friend of mine. And this year he was, when he was about to start plowing and putting in maize um, as a crop, um, the one of the guys came out of there who works in london remotely and everyone in the village knows who he is but he's got a yacht outside his house for god's sake um he came out to my farmer friend and said can you not plant maize right next to my my garden fence because it overshadows my garden and i can't see the view of the mountains so what my farmer friend how big of an area was he trying to get him to lay aside uh i think about a third of an acre but it was just the can you not yeah, this his house didn't exist three years ago, and now it's no, I, <laughs> yeah. But it's the, it's, the yeah, the it's so brazen. What, it's a brazen request. It was, and it wasn't done politely. It was done in the no, you are a 
ignorant rural simpleton and I am an important London banker type, you must you and I think you must um acquiesce to my request and what my farmer friend did was plant the maize almost to the inch next to his fence I've never I've no idea how he managed to get the machinery that close <laughs> he but, did it by hand but on the other three <laughs> the probably o- fertilize it more so it grows taller <laughs> but the other three sides of the field the ones not next to the houses he left a 10 foot wide margin i'm not saying it was is a move i you know morally approve of but it's uh, a good example of that conflict and it's all this weird minor stuff that is culturally changing the rural areas because i didn't grow up here i moved here as an adult but i've done everything i can to try and make myself a local Mm-hmm. and help people out and work on work on that and work because i know i know the names of every neighbor for maybe two miles in any direction apart from the village because that's where other people have moved to but i'm seen i think more as a local now because i've made an effort to do that but yeah. there are because there isn't there is no penalty now or less penalty to move, living in a rural area in terms of access to business in terms of commuting and those kind of things because you don't have to travel to london every day or manchester every day you it is changing the area culturally um and also its language is changing i mean my welsh isn't great but i i can understand more than i can speak um and at least i can carry on in conversations whereas that i've seen people complain that they speak welsh in the pub it's like, well, they've been speaking Welsh here for the last five generations. Oh I mean, since God. it was since it, it was illegal to speak Welsh here, and they changed under English rule, but they changed that, fortunately. But you get people moving in and saying, well, no, you've got to speak English here because I'm English and I can't understand your language. Mm-hmm. Um, so culturally, it's changing, and hunting and fields, field sports, as, as it's called here, is part of that rural culture, and it is... I think we're probably in the last 50 years of it. Mm-hmm. I think it is a decline. I think it will disappear as we know it now. I think it will go. Um, and I don't know where it, what's going to happen next and where that's going to come, but it will be outside of my lifetime then. Yeah, um, my my fingers are crossed for you that that's the case. Well, if it, if it goes anytime soon, I'm just going to move to Alaska or something. Yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah. I've often I, said that uh, before I give up hunting, I would, I would resort to poaching <laughs> well <laughs> it's and that that's probably true it's probably true it's just i'm, I'm i was I, w- I was i was born on this planet and i was and that by no mm. i'm a kind of an existentialist it was not my choice to be born here um, mm. i was brought up in a hunting family mm-hmm. it's in my bones and I'm not going to have it taken away from me and I'm not going to pay for it. Interestingly, that's been an argument that's been used here very recently with some of those um, nonprofits that lobby on behalf of the shooting community is that some of the attempts to remove shooting from the area would actually be against that government, the government policies of protecting indigenous cultures. Oh, Okay. So because you are protecting other indigenous culture or a a geographically linked culture that in this area this is a rural subculture where f- shooting has been part of the economy here for 
a couple of hundred years. Mm-hmm. And if you applied that argument to anything else, there would be no argument. Yes, you must protect that culture, but because it's shooting and killing, it's it's still a harder argument. But want these organisations have started to wise up to that fact that it is actually a cultural issue as opposed to a financial one. Mm-hmm. Say so, so that is maybe where we have some future in that if you can say that this is culturally important to this area and that this is a culture worth protecting or at least protecting the good parts of it and working on the bad parts of it maybe there's a future there but yeah, it's a very gonna, complicated issue and it's very emotive you're gonna have to fight, fight it out with a bunch of fat cats from london though uh well the prime minister's wife at the moment the current one because he's had a few um she is very uh, they're called aunties here um sort of anti-hunting but they are anim- she's an animal rights uh oh i was lobby lobbyist people, i was referring yeah. to the people that are moving to your area but well yeah there's that area, but, but um, yeah okay but anyway continue on. <laughs> well yeah just that we have um as that started to be we have cultural voices who work for the bbc the big nationally funded broadcasting corporation who um that are actively anti-hunting and lobby against hunting and lobby against um any kind of effective form of ecological management within hunting that's i mean next month when the first of july there's some laws change in wales um which reduces the control options available for um corvids for things that predate on songbirds and other things that people want to keep around that change in law is as a direct result of lobbying by a couple of people who are celebrities within the wildlife world in the uk Uh, and you have effectively the establishment now is not lords and ladies and the royalty that is that hasn't been the controlling factor of the uk since the second world war it's about money now and it's about status and power and that money comes from what used to be seen as left-leaning organizations but are now authoritarian maybe in a different way but they are not pro-hunting they are not pro use of meat they're not even pro-traditional farming um and we flesh this out for me a little bit what are these organizations well like the bbc um like uh most there isn't a political party that is the pro-hunting party but the bbc is they're they're funded by the government right and a tax so if you owe if you own a television or an internet device and you watch the bbc live or you watch any bbc output you need to pay a tax i think it's about 150 170 quid a year um which is a license fee um it's a very weird and archaic wording but they there is a fee for watching the BBC, which is effectively a tax on everyone who watches it. It's the original subscription model, um, but you don't have a choice in paying that. And it's also there's also money from the government to the BBC as well. That's like they our are, NPR here. Yeah, but it's like if it's M- if NPR was the main broadcaster, was uh-huh. the national broadcaster, right. um, they are meant to be neutral, and they are meant to show balanced viewpoints on everything but that has not been the case for a long time and there's there's one tv program devoted to rural and farming life 
which every week when that's on, if you went to farming Facebook, farming Twitter, you just see it be eviscerated. Um, it's a show called Country File, which used to be where farmers got their weather forecasts for the week ahead on a, on a Sunday night. You know, it was that kind of service. Mm-hmm. And now it's about, we went to this farm in the Cotswolds to find out why this farmer is an absolute bastard. You know, <laughs> it's that kind of, it, well, it's kind it's it's not you, written in that mean? way. Um, they are not representative of what's actually happening in the countryside or people who live there or people who work there, but they are pushing maybe a certain agenda about why access to the countryside for everything for everything is a is amazing and there are never any problems with access to the countryside or wildlife exists perfectly happily alongside each other and you net there's never death from starvation or illness in wildlife it always dies a happy death you know hunting is bad you don't need to, you know these those okay, kind of things so yeah. the bbc they have a anti-hunting agenda they do i mean that is not their stated aim but right. i do not they are showing that by their actions. I mean, I occasionally yeah. work work with media, with TV companies. I'd, if they listen to this, fortunately, they're not one of your six listeners, but if they listen to this, that might be the end of my career working mm-hmm. with TV companies just because I have been on an American hunting podcast. Yeah. Um, the it, It's too deep to dive into maybe culturally here, any British person listening to this will kind of know what I'm talking about, but you do not see hunting. There's no equivalent to the sportsman's channel or anything yeah. like that here in culture here. Yeah. There's no, you got that going for you. Yeah. <laughs> but there's no, it kind of goes too far the other way. You wouldn't be able to get show hunting for food on TV. Really now it'd be very difficult to do it mm-hmm. unless it's shown in a negative light. You can show evil hunters doing something in a drama, but you couldn't show here is an effective way to gather food that is potentially sustainable, but at least is a an alternative to factory farming. Mm-hmm. Um, you would it'd be difficult to show that on TV, and I can say this because I was on a TV show earlier this month when we filmed that. They went through all sorts of discussions. They said, and it started off with they want to show hunting killing and cooking a rabbit on tv with two celebrities and that was their their stated aim and then when they went to the channel to get the show commissioned it became you are going to a forest to find mushrooms with two celebrities gotcha um and then i mentioned the original premise of the show during the filming and the whole crew of 15 people sort of in unison turned to me in shock that anyone would ever hunt for food mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's a very delicate topic there yeah well it's it is but it's not just it's just that it would even exist in this day and age not just oh you're one of those evil hunters it's that There's people shoot yeah. yeah yeah why didn't you get the meat from the supermarket like a real normal person yeah mm-hmm. um so yeah, it's and over here it's just like completely the opposite you can't get away from hunting media yeah the because it it seems like your outdoor industry seems to be entire tied entirely to hunting um as oh that's not true that's not necessarily i don't well i don't know you you follow it more closely than me but i mean there's there's a lot of surfing media um Mm. like 
there's a lot of climbing media. How, what's the market share of that? Do you know? So it's roughly. No, I don't. I don't. Yeah. Is it, is it sort of, you can, you can have a surfing magazine because it's being funded by the same publishing company that owns 20 hunting outlets. Maybe yeah, I could quickly get, I don't have an area of expertise except I'm a research ecologist. So I'm always out of my area. <laughs> I could talk to you about that. I, I just maybe. don't know enough about, but you know, about other, other, I don't know. Like, yeah, if you had a pie chart, how much of mm. media is, we're, we're going to exclude sports, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause I mean, that would be the, the overwhelmingly big piece of the, the pie would be that but if we're if we're just gonna have it be what like hiking biking hunting yeah uh rock climbing surfing bird watching i don't know half hunting would be half Mm. of the content and i think some of the bigger companies are like the people who own black diamond and companies like that they also own some of skiing, the other yeah skiing would probably get yeah. in the pie too yeah yeah um because i i want to talk to those because i'm all that stuff's imported here and there are gear there are importers who work specifically with those brands like msr and black diamond and things like that they they have a uk importer where they have a whole they do not bring in anything that's camo or anything that's hunting related or anything from that american line like mystery ranch sell here but mm-hmm. you really struggle to find a mystery ranch backpack that is a hunting related mm-hmm. everything. It's all the city stuff. It's all the small mm-hmm. backpacks, the, and also's that's kind of their main product line here. Um, and it's weird when you see those gear companies, it's like they, the ones that bring and sell to the outdoor market and outdoors as in non hunting here, they really try to separate out any of the hunting influence from that gear manufacturer. And then there are specific, it because hun- it, there's not a market or because it could give them a black eye, the black eye. It's the, the association with hunting, like the, uh-huh. our big, our equivalent of REI is a place called Cotswold outdoors. And you would never see any hunting related media anywhere inside that. It's always gender balanced photos of people, rock climbing or having a great time in the mountains wearing that season's colors mm-hmm. there's you, you the, and the hunting shops are the treats more like adult bookstores you know the kind of the pawn shop that you go to where it's behind a grill on a back street somewhere and you go mm-hmm. through and okay. there's there's Very four discreet. slightly furtive men standing inside looking at ammunition um uh-huh. they're yeah. not there aren't there aren't sort of pride of place there are in some hunting areas and some places where it's tied to country sports so you buy clothing there and you buy the stuff for the dog there and they also sell guns um uh-huh. but it's not it's there's often a layer of something else lifestyle related there's there's very rarely something that's purely shooting apart from places that sell guns you're, um you're describing what would be the ideal to me yeah well, you need to come I over wish, <laughs> i wish this country was that way yeah I wish what if, that's i wish that's how you found out about hunting gear yeah you just went into a little shop somewhere and it was that it was that way for a time well bizarrely because you don't get much of those american brands like you can't buy Sitka gear here and first light and things like that you cannot buy it here um 
you see a lot of New Zealand hunting gear, like Ridgeline and uh, Swaziland and stuff like that, or a Scandinavian hunting gear like Harkila. So it's easier to buy. If I wanted to buy a binocular harness now, I would probably be buying a New Zealand or um, European brand. I wouldn't you know be buying an American Rav, brand. No. Rab, Rab, no, or Rav, no, R A V N O, but it's no. O with like the slash through it. I don't know what that is, but I they're a Norwegian company. I interviewed so, a guy from Norway a while. Oh, okay. I don't. I'm be, trying to find he. I'm trying to find a list of companies hmm. that don't the the hunting gear companies that and clothing, yeah, that don't use influencers to advertise and don't advertise on hunting tv and i want to put the that list on my website and encourage people uh buy from them uh hilleberg for the tents maybe hilleberg hilleberg uh hotel india lima lima echo h-i-l-l-e b i think it's b-u-r-g but it might be b-e-r-g actually um they're a Scandinavian tent manufacturer, but they do big, they do good mountain tents, you know, sort of mm-hmm. good backcountry mountain tents. And they've been around for a long time. Um, I'd never see them on American hunting stuff, but I don't see all of that. Um, there's a company called Ridgeline who are a New Zealand, New Zealand, yeah. New Zealand one, but maybe they don't advertise there, but they really use influencers here. <laughs> oh. um I, know, I have a friend who is an influencer who gets free equipment from them for post and he pa- has to post selfies on instagram um of him using it in different places but they tend to i'm i mean it, i might be completely wrong in this it just seems like a lot of the people that get shared on their social media feeds tend to be younger female shepherds and hunters and things who are mm-hmm. absolute experts in their field it's not a knocking there of course I'm, well no yeah i'm genuinely mean that oh you're being genuine i am being genuine yeah yeah, because here that's not the case here i've watched women do this that had (laughs) no interest in hunting no no past experience with hunting and within two years they are uh the ambassador for some freaking hunting company and wow they're just peddled out as the authority on whatever it might be they it's harder to do that here because of the access to firearms and then to the land and but there are um with the farming thing there's been a a more move towards women in farming but i've not seen that equivalent of that instagram influencer just doing it for the gram because it's so hard to get into those industries you have to work hard and you deserve your place i do find it with hiking um and i know of somebody who was con- one of my friends who still works guiding in the mountains was asked to guide somebody on one mountain and they were an, an influencer and they brought four or five outfit changes with them so that they, they could get a month's worth of content from one hike and like they go out and then they go behind a rock and change into a different brand of leggings and a hat and things. And they go out and they get another photo and then they go a little bit on, get changed again and again. So they can get a month's worth of content out of one trip, one day. Right. Um, Yeah. Because there's no barrier to entry for that. And that is where I see the Americanization of that culture 
is in the outdoors without the hunting, but in the hunting and the rural side of it, it tends to be at the people actually doing it. You can't fake it in a way you can, because you, you need that access. You need to make those relationships unless you're paying every single time and everyone knows that you're paying. Yeah. But, but if you're there in the middle of lambing covered in lamb, <laughs> lamb placenta and mud and straw, you can't fake that really. Right. So yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I just want to make that clear. Cause I've got friends who do that, but <laughs> there's, there's with the, there's things that I, there's like ways of being in, like the, I'm sure the world would be better place if it wasn't for the Kardashians. I suspect that, that that's true. That should but, be a t-shirt. But yeah, but but the where the real damage comes and it gets where I where I take issue with influencers is when they're engaged in activities where there's a limit to how many people can do it and still have it be worthwhile. Mm. Like I know that crowding is a real issue in surfing. It's a real issue in mountain climbing. It's yep. a huge issue in hunting. And it's not just crowding with hunting. It's also leasing up land for yourself and all that mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, that's where I just think that the influencers are extremely detrimental to the very activity that they're promoting. Yeah. I, I don't think, is there that thing that they don't realize that there is a cost to their actions? Um, because you, as an influencer, literally by the name, you are broadcasting information out to hundreds of thousands, millions of people, and you have no control over how they take that information and what they do with it. But your job effectively is to fulfill the requirements of your sponsors, of the production company, of whoever it is. And... I don't think those two things, you couldn't have a responsible message as an influencer and hit all of those millions of people and still, and have a, you know, as a universal good. I think that by the fact that you are influencing millions of people through one action, through one edited piece of content, you cannot by definition then have a fully positive output outcome from that. You must be having some negative out, some negative influence there. Yeah, uh, there's just no way that you're you're gonna just you're gonna tweak somebody's brain in just one way. No, it's the butterfly effect still, and that goes right, right. Yeah. And there's, well, there's, I suppose, there's, at the end of the day, there's no such thing as definitive good or bad. There's, it's all based on your point of view of this is by my set of standards, by my morals. I believe that these are good things. I believe that these are bad things, but my, my stuff will be slightly different to yours and to someone else's. Yeah, we all have different value systems for sure. Yeah. So I'm it's just trying like, to figure out how many people share my value system when it comes to a, 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 a small number of things in the hunting sphere. So I guess that's, it's more of an exploration to see how many, how many people like me are there. Has your position evolved through doing the podcast? No. It hasn't. And I've changed my mind on many things over the course of my life. Uh, mm. And I'm keeping, I, I keep, I'm trying to keep an open mind, but we're talking about a, a suite of topics here that I've mulled over for decades. Mm. You know, my relationship 
to hunting and what I think it should be is it was arrived at through a lot of very serious contemplation over many years. So it's not it's not it shouldn't be taken as evidence that I don't have an open mind. It's just that you know I thought about this a lot. If anything, I just I become more adamant because I'm I'm more I'm, the more exploration I do, the more of the hunting industry, hunting entertainment, and what the nonprofits are doing. Hmm. The the more it just kind of reaffirms everything I originally thought. I mean, that's, it's a, that's a journey of a sort anyway. I mean, you're not always going to have a life-changing, oh, I was entirely wrong on this. If you've spent a long, enough time thinking about something, you probably, you've settled on the data already. And now it's just exploring what other people think about it. Yeah. That's, that's, there's a lot of things I'm curious about. Mm. I know what my opinion is. There's a lot of things that I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know how many other people, if they, devoted some sweat to really thinking about the things I'm talking about, how many of them would come down on my side of the, of these arguments. That's one thing I'm very curious about. I'm also very curious about, I'm very curious about, uh, so I look at, I think I the counterfactual that I play with in my mind is what if we'd never, and I play with this, a lot is what if we what if we had never as a society hit and so much of this is american now but like you're you're a thoughtful guy richard so i'm just running this by you you know what if we had never hit on the idea of hunting tv Mm. and what if we had never hit on the idea of gripping and grinning on social media i the the people the guys i hang out with in the small town in eastern montana where i live which is a major hunting destination now they remember be able to hunt freely all mm. this land around now it's all beefed up vast majority of the stuff. i feel quite sure that that would not have happened had it not been for hunting media that they would still that the, the people that live here mm. year round would still have good hunting access that didn't require pulling out their billfold. Do you but think now what, what I wonder is and there and there wouldn't be nearly as many leased acres in, in the US. It could still you could still bang on doors and get permission and form relationships with landowners, et cetera, et cetera. What I don't understand what I don't know is what happens if you walk the dog back. What if I was successful? What if the which I don't think I will be, but I'm basically doing this to my this little movement to save my sanity. But what if I did get the hunting community to disengage from hunting TV and hunting social media? Would does it work the same way in reverse? Would that open up access and maintain the North American model of wildlife management where hunting is egalitarian and it's not a pay to play activity? does age come into this? I mean, what's, do you know what the average age of a U.S. hunter is? And does it 
does that increase by time. one every year? Yeah. Well, I no, no, no. I mean, I no. The that was the argument for a long time from the nonprofits and the hunting industry why we did need to do hunter hunting recruitment was that the age, the the mean age of hunters, median age, mean age, both mm-hmm. was increasing. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of bullshit in that. There's a lot of uncertainty about what the mean age is. The, re- the recording, the reporting is not great. The surveys they use to estimate those things have huge error bars around them. Uh, so it's unclear. And and now, I mean, the thing, in, thing in, the defining feature of hunting in America now is the hype. And, and, the hype is directed at young people, you know, become a hunter, get a Instagram account and, and become hunting famous. It's something hunting media is geared towards the young. So I don't think there's any, there's no way that we're going to, hunting is going to go away through attrition. Is it, if you're using the, what you were asking earlier about, if, if hunting media hadn't existed, if we hadn't gone down this road of popularization through the very, through the medium that has exploded in the last 20 years, do you think, what was the roots for people getting into hunting before that? Was it family primarily? Was it pre-existing family connections that you went hunting with your dad and therefore you're taking your kids hunting because they, and so on, or was it, more endemic in the culture was it part of you're you're still you're still the settlers spreading west from the east coast mm. you're at you're asking what, what, what motivated people to to start hunting or where they got their information both because if if it, it, i suppose hunting tv hunting social media does both now it gets people into the idea and also gives them information on how to lease land how to do this how to access right. these things right well, I'd say before media, yeah, it was largely friends and family. That's how it worked for for me. I'm sure I'm not at all unique in that respect. Friends and family, I would say. My dad took it, me hunting when he was when I was very little. Mm. And it grabbed me my attention very quickly, and I'd say that that's probably. And then, and then I knew kids that I knew kids growing up whose parents did not hunt. Mm-hmm. that hunted mm-hmm. so and i think that that was again uh probably these are friends of mine that i'm imagining from my childhood right now they got into it because i was getting into it so mm-hmm. stuff like that but the but the incentives were so pure so pure it was not about bragging it was not about making money it was not about becoming famous it was curiosity and trying to outwit your dinner uh we liked when even when we were very young my brothers and i we used to like to go out we had plenty of food in the fridge but we still love to go out and catch some fish and mm. cook them for ourselves it's, I mean, the, the, your brain is still hardwired you say if we've been th- around for three hundred and fifty thousand years as a as our species, we only invented farming 10,000 years ago. Yeah, Your brain right. is still hardwired to chase food. Right. Um, and 
well if you were asking the question that could it could you walk this back could you undo what has been done with social media and with hunting tv could we make it back into an activity where the only incentive was the ones i just described the simple pure ones well i've, I've got a question then in return which has other implications is if it was family structure was what got you the information and or at least a sub family structure, a local community structure. You, you knew other hunters. It was, if it wasn't your father, it was your father's friend or his work colleague or whatever. Is that structure still there? I guess when I'm talking about walking back, I'm not trying to get rid of it. Like there's still be sufficient how to content. Yeah, but it's still, and even hunting nonprofits. Mm. Maybe it would have to get to the point where it was, it was com- it was starting to have a hit commercially. People were turning away from hunting because they couldn't get access because they were always being, you'd arrive at your hunting spot and there's already 10 other trucks there, as you've said well, before. Then people are moving out of hunting because of that in a lot, a lot of this country. People well, are just take- very frustrated. So that combined with other economic challenges that we've surely got ahead of us, <laughs> is that going to be possibly the route forward for that it'll just it might take 10 years it might take 20 years by you're which saying time that hunter numbers will go down just because <coughs> of lack of hunter satisfaction possibly yeah um you're paying to enter this thing if your barrier to entry is buying the gear and buying the gun and going to the place well you might end up with lots of people who have a gun and gear that they don't use very much because the last three hunting trips they didn't get anything because there were already 10 other people there and they almost got shot or whatever and now that now they're doing skiing instead or mount or iron man or surfing or whatever the next big thing is mm-hmm. the next thing that joe rogan talks about yeah <laughs> yeah yeah um i yeah, suppose it's- I mean, that'd be one way i guess that hunting could be saved is if if all the media and the hype just makes it so I think, I mean, it, it seems to be that the the model is that you've got to be aware. I mean, we see this now with sort of men between the ages of 25 to 40. There are, there's a whole subset within British culture of people who wear flannel shirts with a truck with a trucker cap. They try and they drink coffee owned by an army, by a company owned by a military veteran. They go to jujitsu and they do bow hunting training on camera even though they can't hunt anywhere whoa oh yeah because oh, they try like and... the black rifle coffee yeah but there's british there's british military equivalents it seems like oh there was a whole subset of people that came out of the british armed forces and wanted to do nothing other than brew than grind coffee and make t-shirts because that's what you did as a veteran and you could find I could, I could find you five friends who do this because you know it's just kind of eked into their culture where they wear a baseball cap, a flannel shirt, they own a Hoyt bow, they go, they do archery in the backfield, they drink coffee owned by some company that has a social media presence, they listen to Joe Rogan, they go to jujitsu, they lift kettlebells, they buy on it stuff you know they 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 hit all the brand names they watch meat eater they and they they use when you see the hashtags that These they're using on social media and they can't even bow hunt they don't know where to go bow yeah bow. and they they sort of, i've got friends who sort of look down on me or you know take the piss out of me because what are you doing uh well i'm gonna go and help this farm with his hedge and then spend the next two days hunting on his land what are you 
<laughs> and I and I get yeah, but why aren't you coming with us for our influencer photo shoots where we're standing next to a waterfall wearing a trucker cap, drinking coffee from this thing? It's like yeah, I'm I'm going hunting. Sorry, you're like well, I'm gonna actually go do the thing. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, I'm gonna do the thing, not talk about the thing. And I think maybe that, that might be a route out of this if you can just get all of those people moving on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. The people who actually enjoy hunting and in, accept that hunting and killing are sometimes happen on the same day, but sometimes you go hunting and you do not get anything. Mm-hmm. It's like going fishing, catching chance. fish. Yeah. I, I think there's a good chance in the, and uh, I'm trying to hurry this along. I mean, one thing I'm trying to do is hurry this along that becoming, being a hunting influencer, being the guy you just described, but in addition more in here, they actually do hunt <laughs> that it becomes passe. Like, oh, here's another one of these guys doing the thing. Yeah. There's got to be, the market's got to get saturated for that kind of shit after a while. Like, there's just not that many takes you can do on that. There's not, there's no room for novelty anymore. It's just, it's all been explored. There's every, every conceivable angle of how to be like the dude the the like uh freaking rugged outdoor guy signaling kind of dude has been explored it seems like the return on 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 the investment is going to diminish yeah like maybe, say, are, maybe they'll go on to something else maybe what we're and, saying and, now and, and good freaking riddance man these are the ripples on the pond after the big splash and there's more ripples, and there's only one splash, but there's more ripples all spreading out, but they will peter out eventually. Mm, yeah. But we just have to hope we don't die before that. Yeah. yeah. Or at least the next generation might see it. Oh, uh, I'd but- be love it if the water just turned to glass and only people <laughs> that were left were fucking beer. Well, maybe make hunting really uncool. That's, I had a, I, a friend of mine, uh, he would tell me that he was out hunting with some friends of his, and he was like, they had a discussion about how much they just wished hunting wasn't cool. Yeah. That's where I'm at. Yeah. I just wish it was not in vogue. Um, well, we're at two and a half hours. I'm going to let you go. Um, <laughs> I'm going to take the dogs out now. What's that? I'm going to take the dogs out now. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I, I should probably let my corgi out too. <laughs> in here at my feet the whole time. But thank you so much. I really enjoy your perspective, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you for having me on. Thank you for taking a punt on me, and yeah, hopefully, hopefully, it was useful to to somebody oh, at least. I, I enjoyed the heck out of it. If if conversations like if people don't want to listen to conversations like this one we just had, then then uh, then I, then I gotta stop podcasting because I I don't think I could do any. I don't think I could have a bit more interesting person on. I don't think I could do a better job. So it's either this or I'm not. If this doesn't work, then it's not going to go anywhere. So well, I'll, I'll keep listening either way. Thank you, sir. Thank you. <laughs>